to Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Good evening, Adam. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And I was thinking that uh, as we're getting ready for the start of a new academic year, it might be time for something else completely different. You mean uh, we're going to step away from our small picture arc again? <laughs> we we would, did two episodes, took a break, did one episode. <laughs> but no, I, I think that's a good idea. I do think that's uh, a good idea um, because the Cladocera, the Chironomids, all the fossils are already dead. They can wait. And um, we could have like a more topical, timely episode. Um that might be of some use to all of the brand new grad students that might be walking through doors, either real or virtual over the next couple of weeks by the time them in terms of when the episode is actually released, at least if not today. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, August 30th when we are recording this. And by the time it makes its way to the airwaves and someone finds it probably, uh, you may be well into those first few days, weeks, whatever it is. And those can be an uncertain and confusing time at normal, under normal circumstances. And right now, adds always a little bit more. And I think that's an interesting topic, definitely worthy of a little diversion from our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, we've spent some time on a related topic where we delved into grad studies writ large and talked about the difference between master's projects versus PhD projects and stuff like that. But I think, in, you know, instead of like rehashing that and or talking about things like choosing your school, your supervisor, your project, most of that stuff I imagine would have already been done by the people I, I'm thinking of um, talking to today. Instead, I think it'd be a good idea to aim a show at new students of paleoimmunology, so they've already decided that they're doing paleoimmunology, and they're just about to move into either their physical or metaphorical desk. And maybe... Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah, and um, we ran this by both the Twitterverse, and there wasn't a whole lot of reaction from the Twitterverse, but then we picked our own brains and the brains of uh, some of the people that we know, um, and to provide some... Kernels of wisdom are what we wish we had known um, at that stage of the game uh, when we were there ourselves. Yeah, it's a very biased sample. You know, it's just us and the people we've worked with. And it's uh, obviously like absolutely everything we do, a very probably Canadian university centric bias. But that doesn't mean that some people out there won't get it or it can't be translated to something a little bit more broad uh, yeah. So I think they're hopefully in, in the things we've come up with discussed and then things that probably will jump into our heads as we're talking about the other things, we'll, uh, find a few tidbits to share. Yeah. And so again, massively biased, but I think the first thing I would put on any list of recommendations for new paleolimnology students would be one, listen to this podcast. We yeah. cover lots of cool <laughs> stuff. <laughs> You've already, if you found this episode, you have already 
exceeded the <laughs> success of your peers <laughs> because you are listening. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, there. You know, there. That's a little bit of tongue in cheek, but uh, th- there's some some good stuff. You know, there, you may I certainly have a look through the episodes. Uh, you maybe will find something uh, in there that you find interesting. Send us an email if you don't, obviously, mm-hmm. and we'd happily. Yeah. Take a stab at uh, at rectifying that that gap. Yeah, and you know, like I mean, we cover a fairly diverse bunch of topics, but I think in particular, you know, the history of paleoimmunology that we're going to have a tough time finding that kind of crystallized in a similar vein anywhere else. But I yeah. think it would be of broad interest to most new paleoimmunology students in terms of where did the science begin and when you know just. Just a general exploration of, you know, when did paleolimnology become its own thing and the acid rain debates and all that kind of stuff. It's a value to pretty much everyone, I think, that's already decided to go into this field of study. So I will, I'm quite content to toot our horn, horn a little bit on that one. But um, yeah, you'll, yeah, just absolutely the, the history arc in particular, there's, n- you're not going to find that, you know, really written down in a paper or anything like that or a methods development chapter or whatever so there's there's a little bit of the backstory to be filled in there yeah but then in a more serious uh note we asked the twitterverse for some advice uh, and then we did get one response on twitter from a k mountjoy whom hopefully is a long time huh, sounds familiar yes First time contributor, I believe. But, uh, you know, the offered uh, some sage wisdom um, in terms of getting familiar with the stats that you need to do fairly early on is always a good idea, as opposed to the day before a serious deadline. Um, But then also an interesting point of that some knowledge of how the world or business of research actually operates is another to give you a sense of how your tiny focus fits into the bigger picture. That's a very good point, uh, and you, you could scale that up all to all different levels. How we, the university research works, because especially a new grad student coming at the master's level who's just finished their undergraduate research, m- many undergraduates, myself included, uh, at the time, really didn't understand how the funding for research works or how the university. And we'll call it architecture or whatever, all of the different levels at the university, research services, faculty level things, all of that, right up to the national funding bodies, whatever they may be, where the money comes from, where the money for field work comes from, all of those different things. Not that you need to become an expert in the finances of graduate research, but having a little bit of familiarity with what those different components contribute to your own project, to your supervisor's program more broadly are really valuable as you just kind of navigate the realities of doing field work, which is often part of paleolimnology and then funding the whole thing itself. Yeah, absolutely. There's elements of this that I am just learning at the moment that, you know, in hindsight would have been, this would have been useful knowledge years and years and years ago. But, you know, it was not a... An element of like the, I guess, there's elements of the nature of funding that I just did not have a direct interest in or uh, attention to. 
and just slept walk through it. And uh, it didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but I think I would have done myself some favors knowing a little bit more about that earlier on than I actually did. Yeah, and I think um, that can be very program specific. Smaller, you know, we are the lab that we did our grad research one is certainly not uh, had so much money that there was no limit to it. But but John's program is is well funded because of all the work he puts into securing those funds and collaborations and all those things. So there's a tendency to to not focus on the the, the pennies, I guess, as much as some other places. Um, and that's that's a little bit of a of a blind spot, I think, for many grad students who do come from bigger labs that don't really that don't really talk about that part of it with their supervisors as you might in in another program where there's just a little bit less to go around, and you have yeah. to, to pinch pennies a little bit more, or or you know the quest for funds and being more directly involved if it's not a case of a you know necessarily a well-oiled yeah. system and network of contacts and collaborators as opposed to, you know, we've got this great idea. How are we going to do it? It's got a little bit more urgency mm -hmm. in, in some conversations relative to others. And, and I guess it's just an extension of that, thinking about money specifically in that a lot of times in, in those circumstances, you may have to go and say, if you want to go to this international conference, you might be able to secure funds to do that uh, from all sorts of different sources. And one thing is to seek out those things. There are a lot of small pots of money that can be applied to and often are applied to directly by the student, not by the research uh, PI or supervisor, that can allow you to do small things. They're not going to pay your stipend, uh, but they are going to maybe get you to be able to go to that conference or go on this field excursion or uh, this opportunity to do uh, an internship or something like that. So there are lots of those things to search out if you are so interested. Maybe don't spend your whole time writing applications. So there's a, a balancing point to find on these, but there are lots of little pots of money out there that when put together can come to a, a fair amount. Yeah. And I guess in many ways they are advertised, but they don't really, it's not one of those things where the opportunities come knocking on your door. You definitely have to pursue them yourself or, you know, like no one, no one shows up with bags of money to give you to go do an internship over at yeah. a lab overseas or anything like that. But yeah, there are and by no means that you are can these, down. Yeah. And by no means are they required that you do any of these things, but if you are interested in, in pursuing them, they do exist. And there are some programs that are very poorly applied to because they're just not well advertised and the application sometimes can can be a little bit heavy uh, in terms of writing you might have to do or things but and but if you do take that chance you you have a good chance of being successful so that's a good point k mountjoy but we were hoping for some more um feedback from the more, I guess, wise elder class, elder statesman of paleomology, maybe, but uh, it was not forthcoming. So we're going to have to kind of just rely on our own uh, experiences and we're our pretty own, elder in this, Adam. <laughs> our own, you know, kernels of Experience. truth and wisdom. Yep. So I think one that. I definitely 
fell into this myself in my own studies, but more, it was one thing that I became, uh, when I was in a more supervisor role, seeing more and more often or becoming more aware of was don't wait to get started. Um, I would say for anyone doing any sort of IDing, no matter what there is, there's a bit of a tendency to spend a lot of time reading and looking over ID guides and all, all this kind of stuff before you actually start looking at slides. And I'm well aware that there are huge disparities in learning styles, but no matter what kind of learning style you have, uh, at some point you have to look through the microscope and start looking at what your samples actually are. Um, and I would recommend to, or I do recommend to pretty much all students I work with now, just dive in early and rather than fall into the potential trap of procrastination reading. That's a good point. I mean, I would say as a little bit of counterpoint to that, that don't be so focused on starting counting and identification and microscopy that you have your blinders on so tight that you don't give yourself sort of the time to take a look at the big picture, to see your project in the context of the literature, of other work that's being done by colleagues in your research group, uh, in the history of paleolimnology, to plug the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the podcast series one more time, last time hopefully. Uh, but I think it is a good point. You, you can read forever. There, you'll never run out of papers to read. There, there will always be another one. And while you were reading those, a couple of others came out. So you can definitely get into the problem, into the, the uh, concern of procrastinating reading and reading so that you want to know absolutely everything. And you do, you want to be a pro on, you know, really well versed on the background, the indicators, the location, the geography, all of those things, but you could read books and books and books on all of those things. And eventually you do have to get going. So I think it's a trade-off and, and both are really key points. Okay. Uh, the next thing I would uh, put on the list, um, and this is one that has changed since I began my grad studies, but uh, embrace R early. Um, this is definitely a case of, you know, rather than reinventing the wheel, starting from square one repeatedly with different stats packages or this, that, and the other, um, dive in. There is lots of stuff out there in R that is directly applicable and widely used by all sorts of biologists, including paleolimnologists. And if you start early, you can very much separate learning R from learning to do statistics in R. And it can be much less stressful to work through like very introductory tutorials of how to open your files, etc., when you're not working to a hard deadline to get some analyses completed in a figure in time to meet a post-printing deadline. It's like, you know, add it to your, I guess, reading list and just wading in, becoming familiar list because learning R and learning how to use R to do stats that you don't necessarily understand at the same time can be very, very challenging and stressful. Yep. Hopefully most of the new graduate students have seen R already. You know, they, that they have that background knowledge from undergraduate classes, probably maybe projects they had to complete, but I would imagine class work uh, as an option, but it always uh, is useful to try a method on the same type of data that you're likely to be working with, you know, to making a 
scatter plot that you were based on some data that the professor came up with is one thing. Making a stratigraphy, going through how to make a stratigraphy with the packages is something entirely different. Running a PCA is not something you'll likely have done in a undergraduate grad or an undergraduate course. So learning those specific techniques and how they might work is definitely something I agree that's nice to do before. That being said, sometimes people work best under stress. <laughs> and personally, uh, I don't know, I, sometimes I think I am, sometimes I probably don't, but um, time management is definitely something that you, you need to understand your own strengths and weaknesses at. And some people just won't be able to contextualize that learning unless it is on their own data and unless someone has the whip, <laughs> yeah. even if it's them. Well, that's when you get into the realm of extreme time management, knowing exactly how much time something is going to take and then allotting yourself exactly that much time to do it mm -hmm. <laughs> without sleep. Again, it's a trade-off because some people that would, would leave them with so much stress, like anxiety level stress, that they would not do as good. And other people absolutely require that kind of uh, pressure. So again, learn yourself. And that, I think that's a, a, a thing that'll weave its way through to really learn a, your own style. We'll come back to that. All right. What about another point? So this is one that, that I think I brought up and Adam wasn't as uh, sold on the value of necessarily. So you can let us know where you fall on, on this debate. And this one is the uh, need to use a reference manager or the value in getting started with a reference manager early. So in my papers folder on my computer, I have like 1300 papers, only some of which are uh, even labeled with anything beyond the DOI. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, right. I know. And so it's effectively useless. I just go and find them again on Google Scholar when I want them. So I don't even know why I keep them. They're just taking up space on my hard drive. Uh, but I'm just too far in, you know, like some of the, some of the reference managers will take those, they'll rename them based on information, but that only works for so many of them. You still end up with a bunch that are junk. And then there's the potential to reformat a list based on the papers you're using for this writing product, whatever it is, a new paper proposal, et cetera, and putting them in a specific format and doing that. I don't know that that's as important as being able to query them to like search the articles and just to be jump able in for a second. We're, we're talking about reference managers here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But, but those are all things that reference managers will do, right? So yep. Mendeley will, be able, I said that already. Yeah. The, that, uh, yeah, reference something like Mendeley or Zotero, or there's a, many others that will organize your files and output a list possibly of papers formatted in a given style. What do you think on that one, Adam? Uh, essentially, I don't use one and you don't need to either. Um, I was. <laughs> But maybe you sh could. <laughs> you could. I don't know. I and I, should. 
I organize all the stuff. I just have one mega text file that I use and um, update and draw back to. I got burnt really early on in uh, Grand Stories where I spent probably in the procrastination reading phase. I'd probably not done a whole lot of work and I'd done an extreme level of cataloging of all the papers that I had read up to that point. And then just before I got into the writing phase of my thesis, um, I think I did an upgrade. I don't know if it's an office upgrade or a Windows upgrade or something. And then all of a sudden, um, I also needed to upgrade my paid subscription to the such and so reference manager. And I, I was broke. And I was like, screw you guys. I'd rather walk. And I still do. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Like, I, you know, I've been moderately successful never having one either. Uh, but I think I could be I could be more efficient in finding literature that I have read before. Uh, so who knows? Yeah. No, I remember um, my master's supervisor. Um, he had his references all organized in an old DOS program that even mm -hmm. you know in the Windows XP days was um, you know compatibility was a bit of an yep. issue kind of thing. I have no idea how it went on, but then. It, I just, I, then I just grew, you know, it became like a bit of a sunken cost kind of issue. It was like, what do I want to get myself married to now after I've been burnt this one time? And it was like, nothing. Well, that is a, that is a problem. I think we probably spent too much time on this one point. But um, yeah, it, it, it works as long as that service is continuing to be supported. So It's something to think about, some, basically. Yeah, it's something to think about. Uh, if not... Don't do what I do. Don't have a folder that has files that aren't even labeled that you have no idea whether they're there. Have some system that works for you uh, and stick to it. Okay. Uh, uh, next item on our list of kernels of wisdom. Just because you're going to study one of something like diatoms, cladosterins, pigments, etc., it doesn't mean that other indicators are not of interest to you in your study. Um, and depending on the size of your lab, this may or may not be an issue because you'll be exposed to other people counting other things or preparing talks or, you know, you'll just be an osmosis factor. But if, if it's just you, I think it is more of an issue or a very small lab to have the blinders on for a particular indicator. And it may be that, yes, your particular question is very much focused on one indicator, but I think a more holistic knowledge, even just the textbook level of a lot of the other things will allow you to answer or at least prepare you for broader questions that might be coming your way at various stages of your degree. Yeah. Although I think in episode 33, we proved that uh, diatoms are the greatest paleo indicator. You can so. send all of your hate mail to Josh. <laughs> Yeah, care of, care of Adam's email address. <laughs> okay, um, one that definitely comes up, and this is one that I've talked a lot about with other people, in, and we hinted at it a little bit. It's, it's part of that knowing yourself, but it's really specific to figuring out your own schedule and understanding when you are most effective for different tasks, uh, not just you know, you're a morning person or you're an evening person. In general, you want to have a, a relatively normal kind of work day of whatever, eight hours, uh, whatever time that might begin. I'm a morning person, so I would start as early as I could get into the 
building more or less. But I would know that in the morning is when I'm the most efficient. So that would be when I would want to do my writing or I would want to do a new analysis I've never done before. Whereas in the afternoon after lunch, you know, maybe that's when it's time to do some reading or format the paper for the references that are, were not spit out by a reference manager uh, and do that kind of thing. So basically understand your own schedule and your own abilities to navigate it. And then the general counterpoint to all of this is sometimes your own schedule conflicts with what the world wants you to do. And from experience, my personal curse is that I am definitely at my peak efficiency of the day sometime between 3 and 6 p.m., so kind of after like an afternoon coffee break into the early evening. And that sucks because that right in the smack of that, as a student, that was the time when people wanted to go Happy to the Greg hour. Oven <laughs> for a beer. <laughs> As uh, an adult with more rough responsibilities, that's a time when your kids always want them to make you to feed them, and uh, uh, <laughs> dinner, picking them up from school, preparing them food, all it's that kind worst. of stuff. So, uh, and so sometimes you just have to roll. And I'm sure you know there are people who are you know extreme night owls and have peak performance at two to five a.m. will have a tough time too. Um, but uh, yeah. So it's one of those things where you can play to your strength a bit, but sometimes you can't. It's true. We do live in a world designed for morning people. It's just the documented. Way it is. Just the way it yeah, is. Yeah, just the way it is. I guess it has to somebody has to be uh, kind of left out by it. One thing to add into that just very quickly is when you're talking about scheduling, like schedule off time too. Like don't, when I said about the eight hours thing, I meant that I don't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week you're going to burn out doing that, like schedule in and, and work to be effective and efficient for the hours that you are working and then switch it off because there's lots of other fun things to do, you know, in general, uh, but also in grad school and, uh, Especially in and grad school. that is part of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's a, a critical thing to keep in mind. The, the, trope of the academic who works all the time is an unhealthy and uh, un, 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 an unhealthy one and a lie. So don't do it. All right. So that brings our little list uh, to an end. But uh, we're going to take a short break for an ad and then we'll come back with what some of the students we contacted with this question had to say. Today's episode is brought to you by Field Meals Helicopter Meal Kit Service. Have you ever arrived in the field, done a hard morning of sampling, and realized you did not bring any food for your team? You're a terrible supervisor. Hey, we've all done it. And now there's a solution to a problem that has plagued paleolimnologists since the beginning of time. Introducing the Field Meals Helicopter Meal Kit Service. A single satellite phone call can have PB&J sandwiches delivered by helicopter to wherever your field work has taken you. But Adam, what if someone has a nut allergy? Team members with nut allergies are no problem, as wow butter sandwiches are also available. Delicious. And a variety of payment methods are accepted. Credit card, PayPal, Discovery Grant or CFI account numbers, and subscription services are available. It's peanut butter jelly time. Anywhere, anytime. All right, and we're back. So uh, in, segment, in the first segment, Josh and I gave, you, gave the new students just in entering the world of paleolimnology uh, what we consider to be some kernels of advice. But uh, we also contacted some current uh, graduate students 
uh, to say that are a little bit, I guess, a little bit closer to their first day than Josh and I are. And just some of the things that, uh, um, you know, they're for, and they wish that their former self had been aware of. Yep, that's right. So many thanks to the Kurosi Lab members, two PhD students, one recent master's graduate, one new master's student, and a postdoc uh, who gave their advice on this topic and uh, and did so on fairly short notice too because I only sent it to them on the weekend and they were really quick. So they didn't get that work-life balance email thing down, but uh, <laughs> I appreciated them taking the time. Um, and and yeah, so I got responses from all of them and, and there are a couple of, I guess, threads maybe in the responses. So I'm not going to read their full responses. I'll sort of, maybe I'll read the first one and then they, the ones that are kind of linked to that and we'll discuss them. So first reply was that I feel like knowing when to say no is important for prioritizing time. Burnout is really easy and I feel like overextending yourself is even easier in grad school than in undergrad, I would assume, uh, especially in this culture that keeps telling you they have to be everything and do everything to have success. So I think that's a really good point. Uh, kind of a little bit ties into uh, what I what we said in the last section. Um, but there is, I think, a, a part of this topic is that you're really excited to be a grad student. You know, you're excited to work on this project or to contribute to this other project, helps out your colleagues or learn a new thing or do this side thing or join this committee or whatever. It is quite easy to overextend your time oh, and burn out, but also not put the time into your own research project in some cases, which is kind of why you're there. And ultimately what you have to finish to complete your degree and stop paying tuition and go on to the next awesome thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess there's a couple things in there. And then, and I guess the main one that jumped out to me is just the idea of burnout. And um, I guess what strikes me is it's easy you know, um, to lose sight of the big picture a little bit, especially early on when you, if you are saying, yes, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do that. Or yes, I would like to join that group or whatever. Um, and then you just get burnt out, especially when like, you know, you're hitting the crunch time of TA ships and all that kind, kind of thing, which is there's a mix of the stuff that you have to do versus the stuff that you want to do, which is the reason that you wanted to do grad school in the first place. Um, and you know, recognizing that, you know, there are limits to your time and your interest and your enthusiasm and just managing that, I think is just a really good thing to be aware of from the beginning rather than having to scale back later on. Yeah. It's so much easier to, to say, no, I don't have time to do this right now than it is to say yes. And then six months later say, oh, I didn't get that done. Sorry. I left you kind of hanging for six months and now I don't have the time or energy to do that. So you're now SOL, <laughs> as it were. So yeah, much easier to say no to begin with. Though it's nice in the responses that 
the students gave, they almost set up their own point counterpoint without knowing it, uh, which is what Adam and I were doing in the first mm. part. So a, a counterpoint to that by one of the other students was that um, saying yes is also really important. Like it in gives you a range of different experiences that may benefit you personally, your career path in ways that you don't really know yet until you get that opportunity and have that experience. So tailoring your experience to what it is you want out of your degree and also embracing those opportunities for different uh components to be added, whether they're directly related or more tangential, can give you a, a range of outcomes that you may not expect or may not have predicted. Yeah. And this is tying back into like the counterpoint aspect of this is like a half glass full, half glass empty kind, kind of thing going on where some of the things you may be asked to do, your gut reaction might be, no, I can't can't do that, not because I don't have enough time to do that, because I, but more because I don't think I can do that, where really the case is the person asking you believes that you can do that. And it's the example I would use for this was um, supervising an undergraduate student or mentoring an undergraduate student for the first time as a PhD student. I got asked what I thought was quite early in the graduate student process. And I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm figuring this stuff out on my own. I'm not ready to actually mentor anybody else yet. But then it turned out I was able to. So my gut reaction was to say no, but in you know, in the end I didn't. And you know, it was more a case of the supervisor recognizing that yes, you can do this. Um, might need a little bit of a push, but yes, you can do this. And it worked out great for everyone involved at the time. So there's that going on as well. Yeah, that's a good point because then you know you do you are successful at it that first time, whatever it might be. That's a good example, um, super or, um, mentoring, uh, and then you get to do it again. You know, you might have an, another student, so you you start the process early. You start the learning yourself earlier, and the opportunities that follow that continue to come to be. Yep, that's a good point. Another, so a bunch of the students uh, chimed in about that that range of topics, both. Too much and too little and trying to find that balance is always the key. Another one that uh, came out of their ideas was that it's nice to have more than one project on the go or more than one component of a project. You know, something that you can flip back and forth between when you either hit a roadblock or get a little bit uh, bored with the things that you're doing at that time. Uh, so you're always making some sort of progress going forward. And that could be writing versus the scope. It could be uh, data analysis versus sample prep. Always, lots of ways you could do that. But setting up a program that has some different components so you can make use of your time. Yeah, so this is like the converse of having too many don't have too many, uh, what is it, irons in the fire at the same time um, or juggling too many balls uh, at the same time. But only having one ball to juggle can, you know, if you run into problems and you can't put it down and you're kind of, I guess, there are issues when you've just got a purely linear project. Um, whereas yeah, well, I think actually your your iron idea is, is a, a better analogy because when you are hammering on that iron, 
you're working, but you got to put it back in the fire to heat up, right? Otherwise, you can't keep working. So you got to pull something else out to work on while yeah. that second, that first one's heating up. Yeah, and then you have the whole, you know, subconscious when you hit a real problem, whether it's a conceptual one, a statistics one, writer's block. Um, and sometimes the best thing to do is to put it away. And, you know, if you hit that writer's block at like, 9.05 a.m., you know, it might be a better use of your time to move on another project to go, you know what, I'm not doing anything today. I mean, sometimes you might have to just go, I'm not doing anything today. I'm going to go and... Uh, well, that's fine too. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but on days when you want to get stuff done, then it's a good idea to have choices. Yeah. Or you send something off to a collaborator and, you know, you don't want to say, wait for a while. Oh, I need this back immediately because it's the only <laughs> thing I have that I'm working on. <laughs> They're probably busy too. Sometimes you could wait a week depending on, or more, who knows? Um, yeah. Make sure you have something you can go and work on. And if that happens to be, take some time off, great. If it's reading, that's good too. Just keep in mind that uh, different topics are useful. Okay, making our way through the list. This uh, one was the one that actually I hadn't really thought of. Like a lot of the, these things are sort of related to things we talked about before, just maybe better examples. The students had more topical ones. But this one, when I told Jenny, she's like, yeah, it's the best, that's the best piece of advice I can think of too, is to uh, become good friends with the program graduate assistant or the department's graduate uh, assistant. So that'd be the staff member who is responsible for coordinating the graduate program. So overseeing the scheduling of your committee meetings and getting rooms and technology for defenses and bringing in the external examiner or setting that up and making sure that you have all of your forms signed and all of those different things. That person knows more about the running of the graduate program than the supervisors. I'm up positive of that. As long as they've been in that job for a little while, I guarantee you they do. Yes, the supervisors have other things, but that is their job as a staff member is to understand all of the requirements, the structures, how many courses you need to take, which ones from which departments you can do, who can be on your committee, who are in different programs. You name it, they are essential and buy them a coffee and uh, introduce yourself. And, you know, you don't have to be their best friend, but definitely go and talk to that person because you will learn something from them. I, I agree with that 100%. And it's very easy to, you know, not engage with that side of the thing at all, uh, of grad school at all, and just, you know, go in, do the sciencey things, interact with your supervisor only, go to your mailbox, wherever it may be. Um, but uh, getting to know the broader department outside of your lab is um, a great idea. And that extends, you know, yes, um, as John, Josh just mentioned, like people like the graduate assistant, but also people in other labs as well. Yeah, that, that was actually a, a continuation of this and or another point that this person responded is to get to know people in the program, in your cohort, the, uh, you know, people who joined the university at the same time, uh, but also the faculty too. You know, they they may seem, especially if you've just come from undergrad, uh, like you know, this sitting on their their pillars in the ivory tower. But uh, that's not really the case for most of them. People who are professors stayed at universities forever, 
and, and so we're probably closer to grad studies than you might imagine. Um, and almost certainly really enjoyed the, the research aspects and the teaching aspects and all of those things. So get to know them as well. Find out what they do. They'll be interested to hear what it is you have to do, what you have to say about your research and interests. Yeah. And um, there was a comment in there about how grad school can feel super isolating. And especially in the first couple of weeks, like, yes, there's going to be people that are in their second year um, or are doing graduate school in the same place that they did their undergraduate. But there's people that are jumping uh, to a new school um, are going from school to school to school, depending as they go through their graduate career. Um, and especially in the first couple of weeks, there's definitely people walking around with, will you be my friend signs around their neck in a way that they might not be, you know, a couple months down the line. And so that first couple of weeks, I think is just like going to a new school anytime is kind of a crucial period to be open to making some new connections because there's a fair number of people doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. Definitely. There is a little bit of a feeling of limbo, even if you did, because I stayed at the school I did my undergrad at, uh, so it, nothing was really new. I had already kind of, you know, been in the, <laughs> because I started in September and I'd finished in May. Like I'd moved, I'd been in the, like we went to Europe and did a bunch of stuff. So it was like coming back from vacation. Um, but there is a bit of a limbo to starting grad school because you're used to having scheduled week, you know, your whole week is scheduled labs, classes, things like that. And other than maybe one or two grad court, well, depending on what, how you're taking your courses, a few grad classes and some TA hours, you, you really don't have that much that's scheduled in your day. So there is a, a little bit of a feeling of floating, I think, for a lot of people and going to a new city, a new school, a new program, supervisor you've never met. Uh, can definitely email, compound ever met them by email makes it makes it worse and uh, that's the same for everyone so seek those people out you know find those find those uh, people who may be in the same boat and end up being you know, lifelong friends who knows yeah and then this is everyone's different but I definitely think uh, in my own experiences uh, at Queen's biology you know that first year or semester, uh, intramural sports were a, a really big part yeah. for, um, meeting people within the broader department that were definitely in the same space that I was and just stuff sure. like the indoor soccer team and silly stuff that I, I didn't really care about it from a sports point of view. Yeah. It's some fun exercise, but mostly it's about getting to meet the group. And then also, you know, mm. Friday night beers as well. Very mm -hmm. important. Yep. Yeah, if if that's your oh, your for jam, me, I'm talking about absolutely. My jam, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh no, for sure. That's that was definitely that was probably the the few times I ever saw some of the other people. Although the other one was playing soccer, uh, and I never played soccer before. <laughs> it was just because the grads, you know, it was the grad team. So that's a good one. Okay, I think we're coming to the end of this. The last one, and I think it's probably the most important. So makes sense to leave it as it's a a, a two part thing is that don't be afraid to ask questions and let others help uh, seek out help it, it it it's part of that same thing you kind of a lot of people feel like they now need to know all of the answers to their own questions or they need to they're doing research they're part of academia they need to find their own answers and to some 
in some cases that might be the the solution and a good use of your time. But in other times, it's just much easier to seek out people who have those experiences and to ask them and get their opinion and then let them help. Yeah. And that will just make everything go by. It'll decrease the isolation. It should hopefully help with that burnout if you're not racking your brain to try and figure out these fairly easy solutions yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I think one a big part of that is don't get too hung up on labels in terms of I am now a master student. I should know these things to be able to fence mountain life. In the grand scheme of things, you know, from the last from the last day of your bachelor's degree to the first day of your master's, the change in you is effectively zero. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, just because you have a new title doesn't mean that all of a sudden, yes, there are some new responsibilities as time goes on, but you have to. You know, you're in a knowledge sponge kind of phase, especially, especially if you're doing the new program, new school, new city, all, all this kind of business. And um, pretty much absolutely everyone that you run into will have been in the same position that you were. Um, and uh, just, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. And it never ends. Yep. I send emails every day. Like, is this even your job? <laughs> <laughs> like, am I sending this? If this is not to the right person, please forward it or tell me who I should send this to because I don't know. Uh, it's the nature all of the, the time. I can't even. I can't enroll students in my own courses. I sent four emails today to get like, can you put the? Can you let this person in <laughs> to this class? This is the way it is. There is, you know, there's always someone who has done this before. Yep. Uh, who are, who can steer you in the right direction and uh, is almost certainly going to be very willing to do so and help and uh, ease that transition. And then you know how to do it that next time where you know who to ask the next time and uh, it's no longer stressful. Yeah, and this extends in all areas of, of your research. Um, science in general is about collaboration. Very few, you know, you know, on all levels, you're, we are standing on the shoulder of giants. Um, but even on a more granular level, you know, everyone need, everyone does better by relying on other people. No one can really go it alone, or they can try, and maybe some people can succeed very alone. But they're very few and far between. Everything else is a, it's largely a team sport. Yeah, and I would argue it's probably not better. It's just the way that that person does it. It, it you know, yep team makes the dream work so it uh can can always be an option there's always an option to ask for assistance with anything and and the universities have lots of resources to help at, at higher levels you know for more serious problems like because it, it is a tough time uh for a lot of for a lot of people uh, some people it's the absolute best years and sometimes it's not, uh, but seek out those resources wherever they may be and enjoy yourself because it really can be a great uh, experience where you meet friends who you will have a podcast with long into the future. But yeah, so I think after going through that list, I think one last note to end on is for all the new students out there, welcome to the wonderful world of paleoenology. We look forward to seeing you, you know, in the lab, at the conferences, in the field. And until next time, 
Thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, if there's anything you'd add to today's list, uh, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo. And if you do have anything to add, there is a tweet. We don't tweet that often, so it's only a couple down in the uh, profile where you can chime in with any suggestions and we'll comment or retweet those as well. All of our past episodes and most of the corresponding show notes slash blog posts, I'm like... We'll be getting back to the backlog soon. Can be found at our website at coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. But you can just find the link on our Twitter bio. And if you're so inclined, give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Those five-star ratings would be great. But to be honest, we don't really care that much. We just do this for fun. And that's it for now. But join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge, knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. Mm-hmm.